Cloud computing was popularized in 2006 with the launch of Amazon Web Services. AWS allowed developers to use remote server infrastructure with a simple set of APIs. But even with AWS, it was still not simple to deploy and manage a web application. In 2007, Heroku launched a platform built on top of AWS. Heroku focused on the developer experience by optimizing for users who were deploying Ruby on Rails applications. Since then, Heroku has expanded into other forms of managed infrastructure, including other application frameworks like Node.js and databases like Postgres. Heroku was the first popular Layer 2 cloud provider. Layer 2 meaning it was built on top of a Layer 1 cloud provider like AWS. Twelve years later, Heroku is still probably the most popular Layer 2 cloud provider, but there have been many other Layer 2 cloud providers, including Netlify, Zeit, Spotinst, and Firebase. Layer 1 cloud providers are Google Cloud, AWS, Azure, DigitalOcean, and other raw infrastructure providers. These companies provide a great service in their low-cost, their commodity infrastructure, but the Layer 1 providers are not optimizing for developer experience. They need to cater to a broad set of developers, and some of those developers want to work at a low level. So, for example, the AWS console exposes lots of low-level primitives you can use to build an application. A Layer 2 cloud provider can build an opinionated solution that serves only a subset of the overall cloud market particularly well. Render is a Layer 2 cloud provider that optimizes for specific developer workflows, such as deploying a Node.js web server, or a static site, or a Docker container. Anurag Goel is the founder of Render, and he joins the show to discuss the strategy and the economics of Render. Anurag was also one of the early employees at Stripe, and he discusses his experience and learnings from working at the company. A few updates from the Software Engineering Daily universe. Find Collabs is the company I'm building. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators or co-founders and build your projects. We are having an online hackathon with $2,500 in prizes. If you're working on a project or you're looking for other programmers to build a project or start a company with, check out Find Collabs. Also, I've been interviewing people from some of these Find Collabs projects on the Find Collabs podcast. So if you want to learn more about the community, you can download that podcast. We also have a new software daily app for iOS. Many of you are probably using it, but if you're not, the Software Daily app includes 1,000 of our old episodes, as well as related links and greatest hits and topics. There's comments, there's connections with other members of the community, there's topics. You can find the things that you're interested in in the Software Engineering Daily catalog. And if you want to get ad-free episodes, you can become a paid subscriber at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. And the Android version is coming soon. So you Android users will get that notification from this podcast as soon as it's ready. With that said, let's get on to today's show.
Anurag Goel. You are the founder and CEO of Render. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's really great to be here. It's 2019. Cloud computing started getting traction about 12 years ago. How has the cloud advanced since the early days of AWS? Sure. So the first thing AWS offered back in, I think it was 2006 or 2005, was S3. That was Simple Storage Service. And S3 continues to exist today. But over time, people have added more and more services to the cloud, both Amazon and other large cloud providers. And these days, it's almost impossible not to run your service in the cloud unless you're a legacy, non-technology company and you have existing data centers that you don't want to move over. So in terms of how the cloud has progressed, there are several different axes, right? And so there's the technology axes, which is, all right, well, we start with virtual machines and then we give people access, SSH access to them, and they can install things on them using Chef, Puppet, more recently Terraform. And then more recently, just in the last maybe three-ish years, we've seen the rise of Kubernetes. And that is a paradigm shift. And the reason it is one is because it completely abstracts VMs away. No one has to care as much about VMs if their workloads are running on Kubernetes. Now, I'll caveat that with the fact that if you're even if you're running a managed Kubernetes clusters, there are a lot of things that the system administrators have to do to make sure your Kubernetes clusters are up and running. But the end user of the Kubernetes cluster does not have to log in or SSH into a VM. In fact, that's an anti-pattern. And more and more software projects, more and more internal applications, production applications, SaaS applications are being packaged and deployed as containers. So that's another huge change that has happened largely because of Docker and advancements in the Linux kernel. And we're continuing to see progress in that area with things like Kata Containers and Gvisor. We have the level one cloud providers like AWS and Google. And then there are the cloud resellers. You have Heroku, Netlify, Spotinst. I think Render falls into this category of level two cloud providers. How do the level one cloud providers differ from the cloud resellers? Sure. So think of level one cloud providers as largely commodity providers who do not differentiate in terms of product offerings to the extent possible, right? They give you VMs and you can do whatever you want with them. They give you building blocks like S3 or Google Cloud Storage. They have some notion of load balancing. They have some notion of persistent disks and obviously some notion of internal networking. But it's really on you to get everything up and running given those building blocks. They're just Legos and you need to understand, and it's a lot harder than putting Legos together, but you need to understand how they work. And in a lot of cases, you need to have certifications from these guys to really build a robust system on some of these large clouds. Having said that, they have made it extremely easy for a lot of people to gain that experience over time 
it takes time and effort. And then companies end up building out large DevOps teams to manage their infrastructure in these clouds. So that's usually what ends up happening with level one. Now, when it comes to something like render, we are focused not on DevOps engineers like level one cloud providers, but on developers themselves. So, you know, I've been a developer pretty much all my life. And a lot of my friends are developers and designers. And when I looked at how they were using the cloud for their applications, how they were using Amazon, and how I was using AWS and Google Cloud, it was just extremely painful for every new app that I wanted to deploy. And so for level two, it's much more about adding value in terms of product and differentiating in terms of product. So you mentioned Netlify. Now they differentiate purely in terms of deploying static sites. And in fact, they're using AWS to support some notion of Lambda functions for some level of backend execution. But their primary product is, hey, give us a GitHub repo or, or any static site, and we will make sure that we deploy it on our CDNs. And they do the hard work of deploying everything on level one cloud providers. So similarly, Render makes sure that you don't have to worry about Kubernetes. You don't have to worry about virtual machines. You don't even have to worry about where your servers are located or how you SSH into them. We just give you a completely self-contained, simple, instant way to deploy your app and it's not intimidating. Like when you log into AWS, you see you know a hundred different services, and it's not that different for Google or Azure. With Render, you come in and you just see a few simple buttons that ask you what kind of app you want to deploy. You click on one of them, you connect your GitHub repo that you want to deploy, and most of the time we detect the commands that you need to run to deploy that app, and we fill them in. But usually people know what the commands are to build their app and to start their app. So that's all they need to give us. And we take care of everything from there. That includes obviously building their app, putting it up in production, giving them a render on render.com subdomain, but also allowing them to add custom subdomains, taking care of SSL for them, taking care of redirects for them, taking care of stuff like Broadly compression or HTTP2. Now, these are all things that you would otherwise have to configure on all the Elven cloud providers. So we're focusing on ease of use and minimizing cognitive overhead and the amount of time that developers have to spend on trying to get their apps up. Because that's not what they want to do. They just want to code and push things to production and get them live ASAP. And with something like Render, every time you push your GitHub repo, you actually see that change deployed in real time. And it's up and running with zero downtime in just a few minutes, or you know, even less if your deploy takes less time to build. So that's what we're going for. We're focusing on making sure that developers only care about or only have to care about code, and they don't have to worry about 
how it's deployed and security patches and things like SSHing into their VM to set up Terraform or Chef or Puppet. They don't have to learn any of those things. And even for larger companies that have large teams of DevOps people, our goal is to make sure that the DevOps people there are focused on higher level things, which is what they want to do in the first place, and are working with product teams to focus on things like capacity planning and helping the product teams build apps that are more readily available and secure as opposed to herding VMs, which is what they do today with the large clouds. Whenever I talk to somebody about this layer one versus layer two cloud provider evolution that we're seeing, I think about the transition in the industry from Spring and Java-based applications, Java-based frameworks, to Ruby on Rails. So with the Java-based framework world with, with Spring, you had this, this system that was really good for enterprises for a period of time. You got typed language. It gives you unit testing frameworks. Spring helps you deploy your web application. But as an engineer coming out of college... I would sit down and try to learn Spring and then try to learn the application at the large organization I'd be working at and I would just get I would just get exhausted yeah. you know and then I would go home and I would want to I would still feel inspired and want to write some software but I definitely didn't want not want to use Spring and then you know I you know found Ruby on Rails and I found documentation for easily standing up something on Ruby on Rails mm-hmm. it was much more pleasurable now, that said, people still use Spring. Spring still has its place. People use Ruby on Rails. Ruby on Rails has its place. Ruby on Rails is used at gigantic organizations. Spring is used at gigantic organizations. Now, taking that to the cloud world, that analogy, we have the layer one cloud providers like AWS. AWS is still growing like a weed. Mm-hmm. You know, AWS suits the needs of certain organizations and layer two cloud providers also serve the needs of certain organizations like Heroku. There are gigantic companies that are built on Heroku. Mm-hmm. What you just said is that you are already thinking about both the individual developer market as well as the large organization market. How do you see yourself in relation to a layer one cloud? What kinds of companies would still make sense to go with an AWS, and what kinds of companies would make more sense to go with Render? I think the answer to that question will change over time. So as I said earlier, we're focused on developers right now, but as we build out more functionality, as we scale out our systems, it's going to become increasingly possible for extremely large, complex applications to be hosted on Render. So in those cases, If you see companies that are using Kubernetes right now on AWS or GKE, those companies will be able to run their workloads on Render without having to learn Kubernetes and without having to build out large DevOps teams to manage Kubernetes because we'll offer the same functionality and we still offer a lot of Kubernetes functionality without you having to do anything. Like private services are built in, VPCs are built into Render, multi-port services are built into render. So 
the answer to that question, like I said, will change when we've gotten to the point where we can deploy an extremely large application stack on render, and that will probably happen over the next few months and years. And at that point, I actually don't, I can't think of many cases where a large company would need to use something like AWS directly. Now, having said that, Render might still be running on AWS behind the scenes, and Render might still be using GKE behind the scenes, but that's completely transparent to the end user. Right. So you think maybe you know we should have these layer two cloud providers that should be offering a better experience to people who are developing business logic. You know, right now we have layer two cloud providers that are built on the layer one cloud providers. The layer one cloud providers are more like these big utilities. And the developer experience for these big cloud providers is just not as high level. It's not as fast to market not at all. As, as, as a layer two cloud provider. And I think one way of thinking about this is, you know, if I go to the AWS console which I haven't done in a long time, so I could be outdated in my perspective for it. But my recollection is it's like this big all-you-can-eat buffet of just a huge variety of different services, and you can pick and choose your different services, and you can find documentation to, you know, to work through it. But it's just a cornucopia of different things. Whereas if I go on Render, I see a more narrow presentation of the different user stories that might suit my needs. Exactly. I see I can I can develop a web app, I can deploy a static site, I can set up an API, I can throw a Docker file on there, I can stand up Postgres. How did you select what user stories you wanted to focus on? And how do these user stories fit into your process for architecting render? Sure. So I was really the first user of what is now Render, because... So I, I used to work at Stripe, and I worked there from when it was just 10 people to when it was well over $400 and $5 billion in valuation. I sort of saw the company scale and the company's architecture scale. And after I left, I realized that I was completely shielded from all the development, deployment infrastructure because we had a large systems team who were amazing. And, you know, a lot of them are, are my friends. And the problem with that is, you know, developers, obviously, when they get to the point where they have to deploy something online, they log into AWS and see exactly what you just described, which is just this humongously large sort of list of services that don't even have comprehensible names. Someone has to make a website to define what each AWS acronym stands for and what it should actually be called. So the types of services that I wanted to build were actually, you know, reasonably complex applications. So one of the things I built was a single-click Jupyter Deploy backed by a GPU with a bunch of libraries thrown in. This was called Cressel. This was a company I created and was later sold to doc.ai. And this was after I had left Stripe. And, and along with this, I built out a lot of other applications of varying degrees of complexity. But for each of those applications, 
deploying them was always a chore. And this Jupyter application that I just mentioned, that is really when I discovered Kubernetes and Docker because Stripe wasn't using Kubernetes or Docker back when I was there. And that really changed my perspective on how applications will be and can be deployed going forward. But Kubernetes has a tremendous learning curve. And I went through it and I saw all my friends who were sort of trying to get into Kubernetes, but were extremely intimidated by it because it frankly is quite a behemoth and you have to spend a lot of time coming up to speed. And even then you run into gotchas. You know, we've been working with Kubernetes for years and we run into gotchas every now and then and we fix them so our users don't have to worry about it. But the use cases were all, okay, well, this is an app that I want to deploy and this is a fairly complex app, like something like Elasticsearch or something like Kafka, but also something as simple as an Express API backend or a Django Python app. So when you think about it from the point of view of developers and developer UX, you kind of know the most popular frameworks and apps that they have. And you have a lot of online surveys and you know Stack Overflow has a survey of technologies and there's the TOB index and so there are some sort of fairly well-known set of technologies that comprise perhaps 80% or 90% of what people are using today and that is how we defined renders use cases in the beginning now having said that once we launched and once we had users who were not us at that point, a lot of our choice of what to build next is governed by what users want. And, you know, there's so much we want to build, but the priorities are defined by what users want. You could have been the Andy Jassy of Stripe. Why didn't you just start this cloud provider at Stripe? Because that is not what Stripe is doing as a company. It's not their core competency. They're a payments company and they have a systems team because they need to have a systems team to run the payments business. Now, Stripe could have spun off a large <laughs> cloud provider, but that was just not where Stripe was at in terms of its evolution. And it, to me, at least, it didn't make business sense. And also, I didn't happen upon the idea of render or I didn't decide to actually build Render until almost a year after I left Stripe because I was trying out a lot of different domains to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I started looking at healthcare, at real-time communications infrastructure, at AI and data science. And I was building small apps, prototypes to test out what a good product might be in each of these domains. And that is sort of the, the chore of having to do that every single time led me to this notion of like, hey, this is way more complex than it needs to be. And all my friends were complaining about it all the time. They were like, why do I have to do this over and over again? Like, why can't I just deploy my code by pushing to GitHub? And I was like, yeah, why not? And for a while, I didn't take it on because it seemed too big, too ambitious of a task. But I eventually decided, or the question before me was, look, I can either have AWS build out this utopian developer-focused infrastructure, which seems extremely unlikely based on their history and their DNA, 
or I could go build it myself. And I think the choice was pretty clear. And that's how Render came about. So I wasn't even thinking about building something like Render back when I was at Stripe. Well, I mean, it's hilarious because, you know, AWS is not the developer utopia. It is the Amazon e-commerce marketplace for developers. Like, you know, what they really need to start offering is like, we saw you bought Postgres. You might like, you know, SageMaker or something. <laughs> like, it's like literally like the shopping cart experience. Yeah, and it, it baffles me that the customer-centric focus that they have on the retail side doesn't really translate to AWS. Like, I've been on support what? calls. Are you kidding? With... Dude, they, have, they own the market. They have like 75% of the market. Well, 23 or 30, but yes, I mean, they, they're just focused on a very different set of priorities when it comes to the cloud business. And having said that, I don't blame them. I mean, they're making so much money there. I think if AWS were to be spun out, it would be what, a 200 or $300 billion company. So they're doing just fine with their current approach. So why would they change? But you're saying there is some subset of the market that they are not able to cater to because they're spread thin? Or what is your, like, what's your criticism there? Uh, my criticism is that they don't focus on developer experience. They build for DevOps. They build for people who are systems infrastructure engineers, right? And there's only so many of them, especially when you think about the number of engineering jobs that go completely. What, what about what about Lightsail? Was light is Lightsail good? I've never tried that. <laughs> Lightsail was there is I suppose their attempt to copy VPS providers like Linode or DigitalOcean, but I mean you can use it, sure, but a lot of people still use VPS providers, right? And so Lightsail is just like I'll give you a five dollar VM and that's it. And you can SSH into it, install whatever you want, but like that is your $5 VM. And, and then they also have something like Heroku called Elastic Beanstalk, but I've used it and it is a pain. Like it is extremely annoying to have to deal with everything because what they've done is taken their concepts of VMs and they've tried to put some lipstick on that pig and they've kind of really failed the developer experience over there as well. And again, it comes from the company's DNA. That's how they started. And it just does not seem likely to me that that will change unless, of course, they try to buy a developer-focused company, which again, they've chosen not to do so far. So it sounds like, okay, so you, you were head of risk at Stripe. Yes. You were there for four and a half years altogether. And then you left and you did a two-year sojourn through the world of startup ideas. And then that's your experience trying to stand up all these little hacks and prototypes and stuff. And the, I'm sure that led to a bunch of infrastructure sprawl and annoying little headaches over, you know, over the course of building those ideas. Mm-hmm. And and that was what led you to, to start Render. Why didn't Heroku get you there? Like, I mean, Heroku's a pretty good experience. Yeah, but the problem with Heroku is that it doesn't scale as your application grows unless you move to their... Also, by the way, it's Salesforce Heroku. That's what I like to call it. (laughs) (laughs) And the problem with Salesforce Heroku is that once you 
want to get even two gigs of RAM. You know how much that costs on Heroku? $250 a month. That is completely insane. Like why does getting just two gigs of RAM have to cost that much? And so eventually what ends up happening with Heroku is people get started on it. And then as their application grows, they either end up spending way more money than they like, or they run into limitations with the platform. And so now let me list out the limitations. Heroku does not have built-in cron jobs. You can't run a private service on Heroku. They restart your dynos every 24 hours. There is no notion of zero downtime deploys if unless you keep two servers up and running and then you pay double. And they don't have persistent storage. They still don't support HTTP2. They don't have a notion of private services which are not exposed to the internet. And so there are all these limitations that modern apps run into when they try to scale on Heroku. And that's why Heroku didn't work for me. Like the thing that I was describing earlier called Cressel, where I could just deploy a Jupyter notebook with a click of a button and it was backed by a GPU, which by the way, Heroku doesn't have, that was just not possible on Heroku. Mm. They need to follow the Reddit playbook. They need to spin out Heroku, make it its own company, rework the incentives. I want Heroku back. I want Heroku. I I mean, I shouldn't criticize because I love Heroku, but it is, yeah, it's... hmm. And we've had a lot of users transfer over from Heroku because they've run into these issues. I know, it's on your landing page. (laughs) Yes, it is. What about the next generation layer two cloud providers, the Zites and the Netlify's and the Spotinst? Give me your diagnosis of the competitive landscape. Sure. So Netlify is focused on the front end. They are focused on static sites and they've built additional extremely useful features on top of static sites like form handling and authentication. And they've had some integrations with Lambda, like I mentioned earlier. But they don't really, you can't deploy a node server on Netlify. You can't deploy a simple Django or Rails app on Netlify. So that's just not possible. And it doesn't look like they're planning to do that. There was actually a Twitter thread where someone was asking them if they could deploy a node server. And they were like, nope, we're not really going to do that. So you should look at these other options. And like this guy was like, Render does this because they have both static sites and backend servers. And Netlify was like, well, then maybe you should use Render. (laughs) So that's Netlify. Zite has gone in this other direction of serverless, which is, you know, again, you can't keep a Rails app up and running on, on Zite. You just can't do that with their current iteration, with their V2, which was released a few months ago. And that is the direction they've chosen to go in. So think of Render as the answer to the stagnation of Heroku and the complexity of AWS. So what we're trying to do is give people an extremely user-friendly deployment experience, but also the flexibility and the cost-effectiveness that they require when their applications grow. Taking a step back, you're in the deep in the startup landscape, you know, there is this conventional wisdom that you should not talk about competitors. But if you're in the infrastructure business, the competitive landscape is pretty, like everybody's doing cost comparisons. Everybody's doing the UX comparisons. Is it such that you have no choice but to essentially 
form your narrative in relation to your competitors? I don't think it's, it's as much about not having a choice as it is about making it easier for developers to understand why and how this is different. So, you know, AWS exists and a lot of companies use AWS. So why should I use Render or why should I use Heroku? Or, and you know, Heroku works fine for me. Why should I use Render? And so this is why explaining what Render does in the context of what exists today becomes helpful for developers as they see, okay, yeah, actually, I didn't think of that. And I think I need that. Oftentimes, you know, and this is very true in all kinds of products, users often don't know what they need until they see it. And I think that Render is doing a lot of that. Hmm. Okay, so let's say I have an app. Mm -hmm. I have a Node.js app. It's got a React front end. Describe the workflow for getting my app created and deployed to render. What is my developer experience? And then what's going on in your infrastructure to get that thing stood up? Sure. So let's talk about the experience first. So I'm assuming that you have a GitHub repo for your front-end React app, and you have another repo for your Node.js backend. Or you could even have the same repo for both. It doesn't matter. So the developer experience is you connect that repo or both repos to Render, and that connection involves just giving Render's GitHub app permission to access your repo so we can actually retrieve and build your code. So that's one click. And then we bring you to a screen where we show you the defaults. We detect what kind of application exists in that repo. And you know most of the time, we're right but we obviously can't get it right 100% of the time. So we show the user what we think their repo deployment should look like in terms of what their build command should be and what their start command should be. Those are the only two things people have to worry about, really. And usually a build command is as simple. In the case of a React app, we don't even need a start command because it's a static site that we deploy over our CDN. So all you need to do is run yarn build, and that's already pre-populated. So really, you connect the repo, and then you click another button, and that's it. You, we start building your front end, and we give you a URL, and that front end is live on that URL as soon as your build finishes, which is in depending on your app, of course, but usually it's the order of minutes. And then you have a live app up and running. And this is on a CDN. It's globally distributed. It's taken care of in terms of SSL, it's over HTTP2. So you have all these nice things out of the box for static sites. And then for your Node app, it's very similar. And that's, I think, what's causing all these developers to like really fall in love with the product, which is, again, you connect your Node repo. And in this case, you have a build command, which is typically you know npm run build or yarn build. And then you have a start command, which is typically npm run start or yarn start. And again, that's it. You fill in those two things, or they're pre-filled, and you make sure that they're what you want. And you click a button. And again, we give you a URL for your backend app, and it's live as soon as your build finishes. And you can see the progress of the build. We show you the build logs as soon as you click the final button, which is actually just the second button. 
and you can follow along. And as soon as it's live, you see that it's live and you can go to your URL and that's it. So you don't even have to install anything. It, it can all be done on a regular browser. I've deployed sites from zero to production on my iPhone. So like you don't need the command line. Everything is extremely streamlined and you can do it in minutes. Why would you make a deployment from your iPhone? Because I want to. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you make a code change? Did you like edit a get uh, like a, a file and or were you just just messing around? I was just showing how easy it is to someone, and the fact that you didn't need to deploy, you didn't need to like install some CLI or you know make sure that you had all these fancy tools at your disposal to be able to deploy mm-hmm. an app. And it is the way it should be. Like uh, my little brother is always like at the bleeding edge of doing weird things with his infrastructure, and he for a long time wanted to you know he had some you know he's he had an android phone and he had some strange cli thing in his android phone where he was sshing into that's terrible it, it was really bad but it was you know i encouraged him because he was you know <laughs> it, was, it was in college and i was like yeah you know what just do your ssh terminal from your phone like all the more like, power to you you know, the, you know? The, this is like asking people to learn assembly we don't do that anymore and that is where we are with the state of deployment. We're literally asking developers to learn the equivalent of assembly code just to deploy their apps. So what is going on in your backend? Sure. You mentioned AWS and GKE. So if I deploy my app, is that getting scheduled onto a Kubernetes container somewhere? What's going on there? Yeah. So without obviously giving too much away... Behind the scenes. Oh, come on. <laughs> nobody's going to steal your technology. Everybody knows you're just scheduling it onto a Kubernetes container, probably deploying it to AWS, maybe also GKE. Yeah, yeah. So I think you got all that. So do I need to say anything else? <laughs> yeah, tell me more. I mean, give me a little bit of secret sauce. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, no, I was just kidding. So, okay, so what we do behind the scenes is, again, completely transparent to the user. They don't even know, like, they shouldn't have to know that we're building a container and we're running things behind the scenes, unless, of course, they want to deploy a Docker file, then they obviously know that we're building the container. But behind the scenes, what we're doing is we have this notion of converting code to deployable artifacts, which is essentially the build command, which when you run yarn build or npm run build, we are running that command and taking all that output and then deploying it in a different container, which is completely segregated from all the other users and containers on render. And that is the container that spins up your app, that starts your app using the start command that you supplied. And we're constantly monitoring these containers using controllers in the back end. And as soon as we detect that your build succeeded, we start the deployment process. As soon as we detect that your deploy succeeded, we let you know in the front end. And obviously, if there are any failures along the way, we let you know of those as well. So behind the scenes, it's essentially containers on Kubernetes. But that is not to say that we don't plan to have other technologies to deploy the same things. Like containers and Kubernetes are a means to an end. They're not sort of the secret sauce or the primary reason for render to exist. I completely agreed. 
you know, this will give allow you to talk more honestly about your perspective on this space. Like I just did a show about operators yesterday, the mm-hmm. Kubernetes operators, and this is a higher level pattern for deploying a distributed system on Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. You can deploy a Postgres database or an etcd or a Kafka, something like that. I did a show in KubeCon recently with the... Have you looked at the Crossplane project? Or yes. The, okay. What do you think of the cross-cloud, multi-cloud story in Kubernetes? Do you have a strong opinion on where we're going, or are you just kind of waiting to see what happens? So I think hybrid cloud is actually more important to a lot of companies than cross-cloud. And usually, cross-cloud is one of those things that sounds great in practice. Wait, but these are, these are totally disjoint sets yeah. of customers. Like, cross-cloud is, I mean, not totally disjoint, but mostly disjoint. I mean, hybrid cloud is, you're a bank, you've got a data center, you want to merge with AWS and have, like, scale out into AWS or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cross-cloud is like your thumbtack, and you have all your business logic in AWS, and you want to run like ETL jobs and BigQuery jobs in Google Cloud. Sure. So you need some cross-cloud stuff there. So I think it's, I mean, these are these are kind of different sets of problems. I am certainly interested in your hybrid cloud like commentary, but I was more curious about the cross-cloud stuff so, here because that, that's what's in more in your purview. Sure. So the reason I brought up hybrid cloud is because I think that when people talk about cross-cloud, it isn't as common as the hybrid cloud situation from what I have seen. Because if you're in AWS, you've built up sort of all these years of expertise with your DevOps team in AWS, and you kind of want to put all that expertise to use, and it takes a lot of time to get acquainted with another large cloud and learn the ins and outs. And obviously, like even if you're running on Kubernetes, the nature of Kubernetes distributions in these clouds is very different and the versions that you want to run on are different. And so there are all these like gotchas. But my take on cross-cloud is that it should be as easy to run your service on cross-clouds as saying, hey, I want to run the service on both AWS and Google and I'm going to click that those two buttons in my dashboard. And that is what Render can provide because we are the ones managing that cross-cloud infrastructure, and we have your code. We deploy containers for your code behind the scenes to multiple clouds, and that's the easiest way for you to go cross-cloud, and that is something that we intend to add in the future. Hmm. What about the CDN? So the CDNs are getting more richly featured. You got Fastly and Cloudflare mm-hmm. that are presenting a world in which we're going to want to run our applications at the edge and maybe we want to do it in WebAssembly, maybe we want to do it in containers or Mm -hmm. something. What do I want out of a CDN today and what am I going to want out of a CDN in the near future? Sure. So it depends on what kind of company you are. For most companies that are not serving large files like video and audio from a CDN, your needs are very different from, you know, say Netflix's need from a CDN. If you're just a developer who's deploying a static site that might be extremely heavily trafficked, and the biggest difference is 
serving small files on a CDN is is technically very different from serving streams of large content, right? And so most of the users we have, or actually all the users we have right now for CDNs, and this applies to most level two cloud providers, they all cater to the developer market where you can serve content that is split up into small files very effectively over a global CDN with minimal latency. And then you have, when you talk about Fastly and Cloudflare and other CDNs that are offering edge functionality, I think that's, again, that's sort of like a layer one CDN. And then you have your layer two CDN providers, which Hmm. I guess is render. And so it's the same sort of analogy that we have in compute. And I think that will continue to exist. So you will continue to have something like Cloudflare and Fastly and StackPath and Key CDN, and and so what we'll see is again people are going to build much more user friendly experiences on top of these providers. And so, like for now, if you wanted to deploy your app on a CDN and you decided you wanted to use Cloudflare, you still have to have a backend to deploy your app on, and you just put Cloudflare in front so that it can be served more efficiently or specific resources like static site, static files like CSS, JS, HTML can be served more efficiently. Now, there's this separate concept of running code at the edge. I think that that is extremely useful for certain situations, but when it comes to most applications that exist today, and even for applications that might exist five years from now, it feels to me that running code at the edge will have its place, but it won't be the majority of compute in any meaningful way. Hmm. Kind of a bold statement. I think I agree with you, though. I think it's going to be like machine learning workloads or something. Right, exactly. Something very niche. Exactly. And again, I mean, these things will continue to exist and should continue to exist because they serve the needs for people who have those needs, right? And and it's the same thing with something like serverless. So there is obviously so much hype about serverless, but I'll tell you this, none of our thousands of developers, render users have asked for a serverless solution. That is- The cold start, the cold start is such a killer. It is, and then it's not just that, you have to architect your application in a way that is sort of, making you beholden to the serverless cloud provider. And sure, there are translation layers and you can sort of deal with- K-native. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, K-native, like we can- K-native, presented by Google. Well, K-native is open source. Cloud Run is the Google equivalent. Well, they're using K-native under the hood, but yes. Who owns the K-native repository? I actually don't know the answer to that question, but- I'm not sure if it's been donated to the CNCF yet. Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't looked recently, but I would be very surprised if not now, eventually it becomes part of the CNCF. But, you know, it's still a lot of Google engineers working on it. So (laughs) indeed, it is what it is. But yeah, serverless has its place and it is great for certain workloads that need to scale to arbitrary volume over spiky periods of time, but for your average web app or for your average server API, you just like serverless just doesn't make sense because we built up all these 
paradigms over the years to optimize apps like connection pooling and caching and like all of that goes out the window and the only thing that you have to say for serverless is oh you only pay per request but like do i really care that much about paying per request if compute costs me five dollars a month which it does on render like at some point the price becomes irrelevant because ease of use wins over and that's sort of renders answer to serverless having said that you know i'm not going to say no to knative or exposing serverless in an equally user-friendly way if and when we have enough demand. But like I said, we just don't see that demand. Yeah. Well, okay, we'll go maybe deeper into serverless another time. But you mentioned pricing. Looking at your pricing, it seems pretty cheap. I don't have the full comparative advantage to other cloud providers, but thinking about your depth of strategy and you come from Stripe, So, you know, I think what you're doing here is you are looking at the landscape of a choice that developers want, and you're saying, okay, I'm going to have a layer two cloud provider that stretches across all the layer one cloud providers and offers the developer experience that everybody else, everybody wants out of the layer two cloud providers. And everybody's getting out of the layer two cloud providers. People love Netlify. But you want to offer the depth of choice that people get from the AWS deep services and the Google deep services, the big queries and the sage makers and the red shifts and these super cool services that actually cost a lot of money. But you want to offer it in a more friendly manner. So is your the cheapness of your services today, do you think of it as lead gen for services that you will build yourself in the future? Not really. So by the way, that description of render was extremely accurate. So thank you for doing my work for, for me. And yes, we do want to offer the same kind of flexibility and power that level one cloud providers, as you call them, have. But the pricing is really, for us, it's more of a question of making things accessible to our end users and, at the same time, not losing money on compute. That is the last thing we want to do. So we're not losing money on compute with this pricing, and it's not a marketing cost that we're going to write off in our S1. So we're simply charging what we think is fair, and it is some combination of what it costs us, but also the value that we provide to the end user. And we're not going to be, and I don't think we are necessarily the cheapest cloud provider always, and that's not what we're going for. We're not going to compete on price and competing with on price with AWS is insane, right? Like no one should do that. And if they do, well, good luck to them. So it's much more about giving people enough value where our prices make sense to them and they don't feel like, and this was something that a user said to me recently, a render user said to me, their Heroku bill started feeling like a second mortgage. And then they moved to render and they're extremely happy and they don't have to take out a second mortgage on their house. And render is not losing money on them, right? And so the... Pricing model is essentially, look, here's what we think is fair. 
based on the value we're providing. And, you know, what we've seen so far is people respond really well to it. This is what is so crazy about the Heroku thing. It's like, it's like, what what are they doing? Like, why is it so expensive? It's a rounding error for Salesforce. It's like somehow... Do you want to know? Is it the... Okay, tell me. Sure. So... I think, and I could be wrong, but from I've spoken to a lot of ex-Heroku people and some of their investors, I think that the perpetual free tier is what's causing a lot of this. So in, in effect, if you're a paying Heroku customer, you are subsidizing all the people who abuse their free tier in a big way. And that is unfair to you as a paying user. And that is what we're avoiding at Render. Huh. I guess their free tier is pretty good. Yeah, you can run a node app. It just falls asleep. Uh, is, is yeah, but I mean, people have ways people to get around it. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people ping it. People ping it. There's like add-ons or just like stuff you can do to ping it. And it's super easy. And then they have a free Postgres tier. And so I just think that that takes a lot of compute capacity, which is never free, compute is much more expensive compared to like memory or bandwidth or storage. They should just do rate limiting though, like monthly rate limit, you know? They do have that. They, They have this notion of 730 hours or something like that. But I think the key thing to understand about what we do at Render with our pricing is we don't have this notion of like, all right, well, you can just get compute for free because it's not free for us. So what we do is we give people a trial period during which they don't have to enter a credit card. They can try render out and they can deploy back in services without entering any payment information. And then if they like it, you know, they should enter a credit card and then they become a paying user. So you you really don't, I mean, are you the unit economics profitable for all, for all your services and your databases and your cron jobs? And yes. Like, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So that is one thing that we have just set as a line in the sand that we're we're just like not going to cross that line anytime soon unless something Mm. big changes in the macro landscape. I heard AWS does that with CloudFront. Like they offer CloudFront at a loss in order to build like, you know, build more of a market. But they can do that because they can look at the portfolio of things. You don't have enough volume yet where I guess you could say like, I mean, you are offering static sites for $0. That's kind of what you're doing. That those is, are so cheap. That is, yeah. So CloudFront bandwidth is actually one of the cheapest things, especially when your AWS bandwidth is probably the cheapest you can find anywhere, right? Because they probably have contracts with all the different ISPs, and these ISPs can't not give AWS good pricing. It's like Walmart and their vendors. So... But even without that bandwidth is cheap. And that is why we offer static sites for free as well. And so we will have paid tiers for static sites, which will have additional features. But that is our way of saying, okay, well, look, this doesn't cost us that much. And we have this portfolio and we're hoping that you like the static site offering so much that when it comes to deploying a backend or a cron job or database, you'll use us. Tell me something that you learned at Stripe that I wouldn't hear from anyone else. I think people underestimate the value of appealing to a small segment of underserved developers. 
I think that that is something that I learned firsthand and that is applicable to render as well. It seems like, you know, oh, these are just developers with hobbyist projects and you can't really build a big business off of them. But Stripe is a $22.5 billion company and guess how they started? They were all their initial customers, like the first few hundred customers, they were all individual developers. We didn't really start getting large companies using us until well after launch. Because also because like no one wants to use a payment provider that is such a critical part of your business that just came out, right? And this is why Render is also catering to developers and large companies are sort of hesitant about us because we're new and I get it. And so having said that, the thing that people don't realize is that if you build up enough of a critical mass with developers, some of those developers are going to become Airbnb and Snapchat and Dropbox and you grow with them. And that is how your company becomes successful. When you were at Stripe, you spent some time working on marketing and PR. So it's, but I mean, you were, <laughs> you were a developer. I mean, you ended up like the head of risk. So pretty interesting diversity there in terms of your work within Stripe. So now that you have your own developer tools business and you've spent some time working on marketing at Stripe, what's your perspective on how developer tools businesses should think about marketing? You know, in, in addition to this bottoms-up sentiment that you just expressed. Sure. So I think there's a difference when it comes to developer tools businesses and what we're doing in the sense that, you know, there are developer tools businesses like Crossplane that don't actually necessarily host things for you, right? Like we, there is a real cost to us when we host things for you and you can use whatever developer tools you're using. And in the end, when you host something, then that's, it's, it's essentially a platform for deploying your app as opposed to a tool that a developer is using in the course of their work. Like something like, you know, when you mentioned GraphQL, Prisma, for example, is, is a good example of a developer tool. So, and again, I, I wouldn't call Stripe a developer tool either, but to go back to your question, marketing to developers, I think that is the, the essence of your question, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's all about developer empathy and understanding that developers do not like to be sold to. Like, I'm a developer. I don't like to be sold to. Like, I hate ads. I block them everywhere. And I don't, I'm skeptical of sort of every new thing that comes out that claims that it's the best thing since sliced bread. I need to sort of test it out myself, or I need to learn from a trusted source that it is actually the best thing since sliced bread. And so you can choose to run ads. And of course, there's this whole notion of like people use what they encounter. So if you are running a lot of ads or if you're doing a lot of PR or marketing, then obviously more people will know about you and then consequently more people will use you. But in the end, it all comes down to the product because sure, you can get them into the funnel, but they're not going to stay if your product doesn't live up to its promises. And that was the thing that Stripe did really well, continues to do really well. And that is what Render is doing. Because when people sign up for Render, we see over and over again, like people 
are extremely delighted by what they see. They're just like, oh my God, this is so awesome. I had not expected it to be so easy. And that is why they stay. So you can spend however much money you have or want on advertising, but your product has to live up to it. Yeah. I mean, you're plucking my heartstrings with your words. It's, you know, it's, we have four ads per show, four podcast ads, and they're interruptive and some people don't like them. Some people get exposed to new tools from them. Yeah. Like, you know, but we have had, like, companies have had great results from our ads. Like, they are getting leads that convert and make them good money. Mm-hmm. But me, as I'm a power podcast listener, you know, I listen back to many of my episodes to do, you know, a quality check on them. I do not skip my own ads because I try, <laughs> I, I, you know, I endure, I, I want to endure the listener's experience. But at the same time, I can, I can recognize that this may not be the end state of the content that I'm producing for people because ads, the interruptive quality of it. I mean, oftentimes when I am talking, I'm trying to sell, you know, companies, you know, cloud infrastructure providers on these ads they're like, yeah, I think we'd rather, you know, spend the budget on a conference. And I'm like, really? You know, conference? You know, it's like, is that what you want to spend your money on? But I can't really fault them because actually, you know, the more I think about it, it's like a conference, it's not interruptive. You know, people are there, mm-hmm. you know, to walk through the expo hall as part of their journey at the conference. Anyway, I I'm I hear what you're saying. And I think it's it's a it's kind of an interesting it's an interesting niche to be marketing to, to the extent that marketing can be interesting. You know, we both started as engineers. I don't think either of us had the intention of getting into a business where we would have to do marketing, but nonetheless, we find ourselves here. And I think it's kind of an interesting, you know, area to do marketing within. Yeah. And I think that there are other ways to make yourselves known to developers. And a lot of those ways actually involve actively being helpful to developers, right? And so being able to show them how to deploy a Redis server on render. And, you know, we were talking about content marketing now, but it's not just content marketing. It is actually useful, extremely useful content because it allows people to achieve their goals. And so that is what we'd rather do than run ads. We'd much rather have a lot of content around being able to build and deploy applications that help our users and that help potential developers, not just our users, rather than run ads. And guess what didn't work at Stripe when we were testing ads? Well, ads. We ran ads on Stack Overflow. We ran ads on Google and they just didn't work. And I don't know if, I mean, I'm pretty sure Stripe doesn't run them right now, but I wouldn't know because I have all them blocked. But I'm pretty sure that ads just... Stripe advertises on 20 Minute VC. Well, they're going after a different market now, right? Like they're going after the sort of startup CEO market. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. okay. So that, that's right. different. So you're talking about relative to banner ads. Right, exactly. So when I was at Stripe back in 2012, I worked with Stack Overflow and we created banner ads and it was just a waste of money. And then we ran Google ads and that was also a waste of money. And then a few years later, we tried them again, thinking that maybe the first time we didn't know what we were doing and it would work and they still didn't work. And this is why you just won't see Stripe advertising on Google ads. And I don't think Render would either. It's much more about making things and helping people discover us 
by being useful to them. I hear you. I know we're out of time. You got time for one, just one more question? Of course. Okay. So you went to IIT in India. Mm-hmm. I've started to try to understand how developers in different places in the world other than the United States how they differ in their strategies and their mentalities. Like I went to Shanghai for KubeCon Mm -hmm. last year. I just got back from Europe. I think Europe, I didn't really get a sense for regional developers there. But I think, you know, just like you have regional cuisine, you have regional art, regional music, there is a regional sense of how businesses come together, how software engineering takes place. What is unique about the way that engineers in India build software and build businesses? So I wish I could tell you, but I moved to the States right after I finished college. So I never really saw businesses being built in India or software engineering being done professionally in India. My first job out of college was actually a startup in Boston. Having said that, I will say that there are, it's hard to put a label on a large set of developers from any segment or country because it's a very large population. So you're going to have a distribution and you have developers in India who are just as passionate and skilled and contributing to open source in ways that you'll see in the US. And then you also have developers in India who are just trying to pay the bills, just like you see here in the US. So that's sort of what I've seen just from the outside. I don't know if there is sort of a deeper, more substantive difference between developers. Now, obviously, you know, some of it comes down to education and your motivations. One thing I will say is in the US, a lot of developers end up or at least this used to be the case. I think it's changing the US too, but a lot of engineers became engineers because they wanted to become engineers. In India and in places like China where the economy isn't as plentiful as the US or there are still large sections of the society that are not rich, you'll find that a lot of people see becoming an engineer but also not just an engineer, like a doctor, lawyer, like those things become a means to an end as opposed to something that you enjoy doing. So that might be one difference. But like I said, I think that it's changing. Even in the US, you see places like Lambda School where people who were waiters decided that they want to learn coding and then they go and find a tech job because it's paying them a lot more than they were making earlier. So again, it's it's like you'll find people of all kinds, you'll find developers of all kinds in all countries. And it's hard for me to it's hard for me to say, oh, look, Indian developers are different in this way. But also I <laughs> I I don't have enough data for you, unfortunately. All right. Well f- fair enough. Well it's been really fun talking, Anrag. Likewise. Your company is is really interesting and I am definitely gonna have to figure out something to throw on there. And Please try do. it out. You know, we should definitely do another show in the future. Yeah. Perhaps when you launch your high margin data warehousing product. <laughs> Hopefully before that. What's going to be the first high margin service? Is it going to be data warehousing, managed TensorFlow? What are you thinking? Oh, well, 
So our users want managed Redis. So we have managed Postgres, but we don't have managed Redis yet. And there are people who want managed MySQL. Don't do Kafka. Well, Actually, I guess you could do Kafka pretty easily now. Kafka's pretty easy. If you do use the operators, it's probably easier, right? Yeah. So actually, we use operators for our managed Postgres offering already. And I think that operators are still in their infancy. Still early. Very, very early. And so a lot of them have bugs, and a lot of them are, they don't claim to be production ready. And that will obviously change, and it's going to make things easier for people who are used to managing Kubernetes clusters and who can manage Kubernetes clusters, but it won't make things easier for developers because they're like, operators? Like, what? What? CRDs? What? Right? Like, no one should have to understand all of that just to get a Rails app up and running. You should just do a data warehouse. Like, I was talking to somebody about this, like, indie hackers are gonna need a data warehouse, and they have no idea how to operate a data warehouse. I don't know. I So <laughs> I, can ask, I can ask Cortland. He's using Firebase right now for all his data. And oh, right, I know. <laughs> maybe he needs a data warehouse. I'll ask him today. <laughs> I don't know if he needs it today. I, I don't mean indie hackers specifically. <laughs> I mean indie hackers more generally. Oh, like, I see, I see. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean indie hackers. That's hilarious. No, but like seriously, these people who, you know, they start a startup out of frustration or whatever. It's indie hacker business. It's a solo entrepreneur business. And it takes off and then like they don't, scale up their hiring squad so they're not like getting data infrastructure people yeah because they it's don't hard. know how to operate it's hard it is so hard to hire engineers and it's even harder to hire devops engineers yeah but i don't even i actually don't even know how hard it is to maybe there already is a, a data data warehouse solution that indie hackers can operate or no, maybe i'm totally misguided maybe i don't know the the market but also you need to have like yeah so i think data warehousing is definitely becoming more and more important. And we'll see that as people build out more applications that can derive more insights from the data people already have without you having to manually write SQL queries. And we're seeing some of these startups just sort of coming up now. And so that's going to mean people will need data warehouses, just like they use Google Analytics and other analytic solutions today. Data warehouses, I think, are going to become sort of this lightweight thing that you can use to get really quick insights on what's going on with your data. So yeah, maybe we'll think about that. But like I said, a lot of it depends on our users and what their needs are. And as we see more users wanting to build data warehouses, maybe we'll build it as a hosted solution. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think, yeah, you're you're probably right. Like just sitting here, maintain optionality. Your current vision, you got a lot of ground to cover. Man, we didn't even talk about GVisor. You mentioned GVisor. We got a lot to cover for the next show. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And well, Kata containers. Well, I actually think Kata is slightly better right now. But I thought you don't you need both of them? No. To, no. Like you don't need both. No. Okay. I thought because I thought GVisor is not actually a container. It's just like a shim that sits in front of your like your syscalls. It's not an actual container. It's not. Yeah. So, but but I think that you can't. You can still use Docker containers with GVisor. But Kata Containers is a slight, a completely different stack in that sense. Like it's micro VMs in a way. Right. But doesn't it still have the full syscall interface? Kata Containers doesn't actually shield syscalls. It's, it doesn't worry about which syscalls you can make or not. And that's actually one of the reasons it's much faster than GVisor. 
So no, but that's my point is that these are like disjoint solutions. I don't understand what you're saying. They're disjoint solutions, but if you want to run isolated workloads, then you use one or the other. You don't want to use both. There's no point in using both is what I'm saying. I see. Because Kata containers isolate your workloads in your micro VM, and then Gvisor isolates your workloads in your Docker container. That's the main difference. Ah, okay. Interesting. Okay, well, maybe this will be this will be good for another show. I'm definitely out of my depth here. That sounds like we could do a whole show on Firecracker, yeah. micro VMs, subjects that have nothing to do with render. <laughs> well, they do because we run isolated workloads, right? We're running multi-tenant clusters. Hmm. Not to open a can of worms, but the Firecracker thing, I thought, was such a curious open sourcing by AWS. It's like, you know, AWS, we don't do open source. Then all of a sudden, AWS, here's our open source, like, VM thing. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what prompted that. And I mean, it it could also just be internal engineering pressure where people were like, look, we have all of this and Google's open sourcing Gvisor and Kata Containers is doing its own thing. And we built this out why don't we open source it and it's it makes us look worse or whatever it is right like i don't know what the what the internal discussion was no but, it makes them look better right no what i mean is if they didn't then it would make them look worse so like it uh, yeah uh. so it would make them look worse than gcp or whatever so yeah so maybe that's why they did it but probably it's also because lambda is sort of this uh black box to a lot of companies and knowing that Firecracker, the container runtime is open source might give some of their larger customers more confidence in being quote unquote locked into Lambda. Hmm. Okay. Well, Anurag, thanks for coming on the show. Been really fun talking to you and we will do this again in the future. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. It was a really fun conversation. Thank you for having me. Wow. 